and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Today we have the first of several special episodes from the LA Times Festival of Books. In this episode, we speak with authors Hanif Abdur-Rakib, who recently wrote Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, and Claire Vey Watkins, author of Gold Fame Citrus. These are obviously very different <laughs> authors, but they're also um, both like friends of the show, I guess I would say. Yeah. I mean, I was ready to offer Hanif a co-host position yeah, when he first God. came on the show because he was such a delight. And as I think listeners will hear, something that's really amazing about Hanif, aside from his writing and his mm-hmm. various accomplishments, yeah. is he's encyclopedic in his yes, knowledge totally. about almost everything, it seems like. Music, certainly. And we so we talked to him a bit about the Tribe book and about his relationship as a fan to Tribe Called Quest. But he is he is so knowledgeable and so off the cuff. He is just amazing to talk to. Yeah, he is like just an incredible resource for all things pop culture. Yeah, it's like, kind of, it's insane. And yeah, and the instant recall that he seems to have is also something I'm deeply, deeply envious of. I me too, because it I just want it. <laughs> 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 and we should also say that uh, one of the things that I loved about this conversation with Claire V. Watkins is, I mean, it's the subject of her book, in a sense, is talking about the desert and yeah. like what the desert means to us is like a kind of frontier and like what's happening now with climate change and learning to live in like more austere, more severe environments. So that was also super fun. Yeah, it was kind of like talking to somebody who came to us from the future and who could tell yes, us what life future maybe yeah. <laughs> what life was like um, and really warn us moving forward. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, well, let's get to those conversations. Let's do it. We're thrilled to have with us today at the LA Times Book Festival, Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif is a poet, essayist, and music critic whose work includes the poetry collection The Crown Ain't Worth Much and the essay collection They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us, as well as his most recent book, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, which I'll describe briefly as a 360-degree look at the legendary hip-hop group that traces their journey as artists against the backdrop of the cultural and political history that they at once responded to and which they shaped. Welcome to the show. New York Times bestseller? Yes. It is, yeah. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Congrats. Congratulations. Thanks for having me back, y'all. So let's just start. What made you want to write about A Tribe Called Quest? Well, Fife died, and I began to think a lot about the legacy of the music I loved growing up and how I grew up with a lot of critics who wrote about music of generations of four mine with a lot of reverence, and I was expected to kind of, like, bow to that reverence. Mm -hmm. And I wondered when a wave of writing would come from the generation of ours that dealt with writing about touchable, still mostly living musicians with the right. same kind of reverence. And to write about a tribe called Quest like I was written about, you know, like the Beatles were written about to me, or like the Clash was written about to me, all these things. And so Tribe Called Quest is a good starting point for me because they were the first rap group that I fell in love with. They were the first rap group that I felt like I was allowed to listen to in my house, you know? Though they're also kind of an interesting moment of tension because I love the way that the book opens, actually, with this kind of like... You were expected to play jazz. Jazz was this kind of language or vernacular that your dad was very fluent in and that meant a great deal to him and that you had this kind of like guilty, I don't necessarily want to do this. And then Tribe was a compromise. Yeah, yeah. I was a bad trumpet player, notoriously bad trumpet player. 
but I tried, kind of. Yeah. You know, my father wanted me to play, and there was some act of defiance because I had the music teacher who denied me an ability to play, and so it was all in response to that. But I didn't enjoy playing trumpet. You know, it was a task. It didn't come naturally to me. I didn't have the ear for it or the energy for it, and I think learning an instrument is, then becomes a task. And so I was not very on board with playing trumpet, but I did like the sound the trumpet made. Mm. I liked seeing that sound repurposed, the sound of the horn being repurposed in rap music, which was something I gained an early love for. So that's the connection between jazz and that early hip-hop, yeah, at least, yeah. that you see. Something that's interesting about the book is that it's written in the epistolary style. It's letters. Why did you choose that form? One, I thought it opened up more of an actual personal engagement with the music and the people who made the music. Even when writing, understanding that you know, at the time I wrote, I assumed that none of them would read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Fife cannot. But, like, I did not assume mm. that Q-Tip or Ali would read the letters or Miss Cheryl Boyce Taylor, Fife's mom. I thought that was an interesting way to insert myself into a dialogue with no expectation of a return dialogue, which is what fandom is, you know? This is a book, to me, that is largely about fandom and the very iterations of fandom and the way fandom presents itself. And to me, fandom is a love letter unfurling to someone who is likely not going to respond to it. That's the whole concept of loving someone from afar. And so I wanted to bring that to life on the page. Tribe Called Quest was one of my favorite bands growing up. It's hard, but can you describe just a little bit about their sound, their vibe, their aura? Like, what was it about them that initially drew you in? Well, what pulled me in was that they were, they kind of made weirdness cool. Surely they were not as weird as I imagined them to be. And I think when you're a kid, you always imagine yourself as weirder than you actually are because, you know, we're all we're sensitive beings. But A Tribe Called Quest, to me, was somewhat outside of the prepackaged idea of what hip-hop was doing at the time, so therefore they were outsiders. They made that outsiderness kind of cool. They were somewhat nonsensical storytellers, you know, like unreliable narrators, and there was something fun and touchable about that as well. Do you think of yourself as a particular kind of fan? Or do you think there's different kinds, yeah. there's forms of fandom? You mean a tribe called Quest or just of the world? In the world. Yeah, in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think the type of fan I am depends on what I am thinking about or spending time with. I am a really big, I'm a person who believes that the a major tenet of fandom is to hold an artist accountable to creating better work, if not for you, for the world, you know what I mean? But another major channel of the fandom is understanding that you don't necessarily, the artist does not belong to solely you. And so therefore, I think all the time about Paramore and the last Paramore album that came out and people who were like, well, this is fine, but I wish they would have made an album like the one they made in 2007, Riot. And I was like, well, yeah, but like Haley Williams is a literal teenager then, you know what I mean? And it dawns on me that people don't necessarily, in that mode, people don't want the artist to grow. They want the moment. They want to rely on a moment. And to me, fandom cannot be about solely the moments we've had with an artist. It also has to be about the potential for moments to have as we grow with an artist. And so I think that's kind of where I'm at in terms of fandom. But it often depends on, you know, like, I think we listen to music for different reasons and we come to different facets of pop culture for different reasons. And so the reasons I'm a fan of A Tribe Called Quest and the way I perform my fandom of A Tribe Called Quest is not the way I perform my fandom for, say, Casey Musgraves, right? It's a different, (laughs) there are different iterations of fandom. Yeah. It also feels like right now we're in a weird moment of fandom where there's groups, you know, where, like, the monsters. The Barbies. The Barbs, the Barbs, the Carbs. (laughs) And that fandom has also become this almost like an activist position where you go and defend 
the person no matter I mean, what. Yeah. You know? I feel like it's always been like that. I just uh -huh. feel like now it's on the internet. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, I think Beatlemania was in some ways similar to that, and, you know, Rolling Stones fans are somewhat similar to that, especially in the 80s, I think we really hit a corner in terms of how people related to pop culture fandom because of how consistent the stream of like teen magazines became and how consistent these exclusive looks into people's lives became, which really were the earliest iterations of like a Twitter stream or an Instagram right. feed. The more personal interaction with celebrities can feel, the more visceral the act of fandom becomes, right? Because you can like log on to Instagram and know how a musician is spending their day mm. and you might be spending your day doing something adjacent to that musician so you have no choice but to feel tethered. What's wild is that the word tether takes on a new meaning because of us, you know what I mean? Well, like, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's only been in my vernacular for so long, <laughs> and now I feel like it's haunting and spooky. Though it still works in those ways. It does still work, right? Like, the, 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 the glorious life and then the actual yeah. life. I haven't seen us, to be fair, because I'm too scared, but I read the whole plot summary on Wikipedia, really? so I know what, yeah, I know <laughs> what jumps off. Uh, people have said it's not scary, but then other people have said I couldn't sleep for days after, and I don't want to roll those dice, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I feel like you could bring a blanket. Yeah. And maybe if it's getting scary, just like... Throw it. I'm trying to... I do want to watch it. I'm just trying to watch it at the crib. I don't think I can watch it in the movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you know? you're right. But it's yeah, because I think... So now... <laughs> sorry, I got <laughs> diverged from the point. I think fandom is so rooted in the personal mm. that to criticize even, not even to attack, to criticize a musician's work is effectively to criticize those who love the work and to criticize not only those who love the work, but those who have had precious moments with that work. Do you I think fandom is also about the age that you became attached? I mean, sure. that revisiting that, like in my eyes, like Midnight Marauder is a perfect album. Right. At, at the time I listened to it, I thought it was. I'm not sure if I listen to it now. I mean, actually I have listened to it kind of recently. I still think it's really yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. But that, that tenderness that you have towards a group was like also about the time we were most receptive to them. Right, of course, yeah. I mean, I think that so much of fandom is always music at least. For me, and I think for many people, it's always been about the moment the person arrives to whatever they love. Fandom is something that's intertwined exclusively with memory, which is why I think when people are always, we always have this immensely boring conversation about how do I separate the art from the artist? It's like, that's a boring question, and that's yeah. not what people are actually asking. What they're actually asking is, how can I absolve myself, or how can I still hold these memories close despite what I yeah. know now? Or they're asking, what are my memories worth in balance with this knowledge that I now have about this person I loved, right? That is the more interesting question, and that is the actual question. It's not like, how do I separate the artists? Like, you're talking about yourself. When you hear a song, right. it brings back those memories, and then if you can't, if you feel like, I'm not able to access this anymore because this person, right. that's painful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a long and winding answer to a lot of stuff about fandom and memory, but I, I do think a lot about what people are actually saying when they're saying, I cannot detach myself from this person or their music. But you yeah. never had to do that with, you never felt that you had to do that with Tribe Called Quest. No, and Tribe Called Quest has had some moments that are not ideal, but I also think a great thing about a Tribe Called Quest is that we have gotten to grow up with them. There's one thing that's really great about the comeback album, the 2016 album, Thank You For Your Service, is that it, for me, kind of like completed this arc of this group that was very young at one point and then grew up, you know, like grew up shifted political stances, repurposed their political stances to echo to a moment, and did that really effectively. Not everyone gets that full life in a musical spotlight, you know? Too many groups as they age are just kind of required to play the hits, but because hip-hop is so young as a genre, 
and because hip-hop has yet to figure out what to do with its acts that age, hip-hop, there is no kind of like, there is not a large market for the hip-hop legacy act who just goes out on the road and plays some hits. There is one, you know, Tribe Called Quest did the like Rock the Bells tour, which was mostly that. But these acts are also still young enough to push the boundaries of new music as well. It seems like that scene is kind of growing a little bit with 93.5, which is the station yeah. in L.A. Like, they're putting K-Day. on... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, They're putting on, like, Bone Thugs. Right. And all these people are coming to town. And I was thinking, like, to me, that seems new. But it perhaps it's something that now, you know, 20 years on... Yeah. We're finally kind of... is an age I, we're stepping into. It's not entirely new, but I think people are finding out ways to do it that aren't entirely clumsy. Because it's so seamless in rock, in, in other genres, to just have... You know, wheel out the stones and have them play Satisfaction. You know, yeah. you know the Who, Pete Townsend. Despite I hope I die before I get old, Pete Townsend is still playing Baba O'Reilly, right? To that point, though, part of it is because the tensions that animated that music have largely been resolved yep. for those figures. This is a way in which, like an NWA record, the tensions are still there, still so it yeah. feels present. But, yeah. And it's the same thing that there's a way in which listening to an NWA record is like reading a Richard Wright novel there's an endurance there that makes them both like always feel fresh and present because of their unresolvedness. Right. Yeah. Which I think is, again, because hip hop is so young, it remains like punk in some ways. It mm. remains in conversation with the mm. political moment. It remains a vital act of reporting. I think about Vince Staples, who is a rapper deeply immersed in the same kind of nature of reporting as NWA was. It's just a different vibe. It's a different yeah. like, the way that he is reporting the news is different than shouting fuck the police. And so I still think that rap very much has a lot of skin in the game. And so that makes playing these legacy shows hard. Also, rap moves quicker sonically, aesthetically. It moves quicker than any other genre mm. before it. That also makes playing these legacy shows hard. You know what yeah. I mean? And so it really behooves these older acts to put out some new shit. Just to return to the book very briefly, as you were writing this book, what was it like... Were there things that you discovered anew about Tribe Called Quest or things that surprised you, like ways that you could mark your own shift in thinking about them and their legacy? I don't know if things surprised me about A Tribe Called Quest, but things surprised me about the entire ecosystem of (laughs) A Tribe Called Quest and how many ways I could connect the entire ecosystem of music history to A Tribe Called Quest. Mm. I was in a college earlier this week and a professor was like, well, how... There's so much happening in this book that, you know, it's like overwhelming in a good way or whatever. And I was like, yeah, but it's all about trust, right? To do the amount of research, because make no mistake, I think I did an okay job of masking it, but this book is a research-heavy book. To do that amount of research outside of the central theme you're looking at is to see that theme in everything. And so Mm -hmm. I had to write in a way where I just trusted it would all come together. There's that chapter about a Tribe Called Quest breakup that goes pretty deep into the history of black magazine covers. And that is because I remember the feeling I got looking at that Source magazine where a Tribe Called Quest was on the cover and they were broken up. And I remember an elder telling me the story that they of seeing Otis Redding's dead body on the cover of the Jet Mag. And I was like, there has to be a way these histories are connected. I refuse to believe there's a way these histories are not connected. And to immerse myself in finding those connections means that I spent so long seeing the Tribe Called Quest story and all of the histories before it. And so I surprised myself, or I was surprised in the confirmation that it is never just the one thing. Mm -hmm. Nothing in black history 
American history, really, but specifically in black musical history, none of it happens in a vacuum. In a tribe called Quest, because so much of their music was appealing to ancestral sounds, it makes entire sense that those same ancestors would be present in the story of their, in their history, you know what I mean? And so I kind of was surprised by all the things I had a chance to connect, and I was surprised in the various old videos and interviews I was able to dig up, but mostly I was surprised in seeing how seamlessly the echoes hit each other. To follow up on an earlier answer that you gave, have you spoken to any of them? Because it must be strange when you so are so immersed, as you just said, and then suddenly you might hear something or they become a person. Yeah, right? yeah, it's wild. Q-Tip, like, I haven't spoken to Q-Tip, but he sent out, like, a message of approval. <laughs> he enjoyed the book, and that's, that's really nice. great. What and was his message? He, like, tagged me in a tweet and sent out some prayer hand emojis and thanks, hmm. and that was cool. I'm doing a thing with Ali Shaheed Muhammad in June. Apparently at Adrian Young's art studio out here. Oh, cool. And so that's why. And I had to talk to Cheryl Boyce Taylor because we used some of her poems in the book. So right. we had to get approval to use her language in the book. And she reached out and sent a nice message about the book. And it was super kind. She's writing a book about Fife and I'm blurbing that book, which is like a beautiful full circle thing. And I'm really grateful to her, like truly. And so, yeah, I've gotten good enough feedback, I think. Right. I think after I got the Q-tip message, I was very much like, nothing else matters now. <laughs> well, and just to wrap up and kind of pitch forward a little bit, you do have, you'll be able to make all of these connections, these kind of long historical connections yeah. in your forthcoming book, right? I'm going to butcher the title, of course. They don't dance no more. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny uh, title to people About the history of black loud. performance yeah. in the United States. Yeah, I think, and who knows, to be fair, I just turned it in the first draft. I turned it in the first draft like a few weeks ago, so Random House may hate it. But... It became these like meditations and musings on the various modes of black performance in America and what we imagine those to be. Like there's a long form, there's a piece about spades in the playing of spades. There's a piece about magic, the first black woman magician, Ellen Armstrong. The first black woman magician to have a solo show. Mm. There's like a piece about that in the concepts of black girl magic and the idea of the magical Negro, which of course is the title of Morgan Parker's book, but also just like a whole theory. And so, there are all these kind of pieces that are not just giving strict history. Because I was like, I could write it easily, write a whole history of blackface. Right. But that's not as exciting for me. There are pieces in there. There's a piece about Al Jolson, and there's a piece about Master Juba, who is the most prominent black performer of blackface. And there's a piece about Ben Vereen's performance at Ronald Reagan's inauguration. Oh, yeah. But I also wanted to give ideas and thoughts and voice to other modes of black performance that people would imagine as mundane, like going to work. You know what I mean? Mm. Consuming microaggressions at an office shop. You right. Know? All of these things that are not necessarily an on-stage performance. Those excited me and gave me more room to work. I wrote a thing about, like, black people who cannot dance. You know, like, all of these ideas that were exciting to me and, like, more exciting, perhaps, than just ruminating on the ills of minstrelsy. Well, we very much look forward to that. I'm sure our listeners do, too. We've been speaking with Hanif Abdul-Rakib, author most recently of Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books. We've been speaking with Hanif Abdul-Rakib, author of Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. We now turn to our conversation with Claire V. Watkins, author of Gold Fame Citrus.
All right, we are here at the LA Times Book Festival with Claire V. Watkins. Claire V. Watkins is the author of the award-winning story collection Battleborn, as well as the novel Gold Fame Sistress, published in 2015. Both her books take place in the American West. Gold Fame Sistress imagines a near future where drought brought on by climate change has rendered the region all but uninhabitable. Claire is a Guggenheim Fellow, a Lannan Foundation Fellow, one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35, and one of Granta's best young American novelists. Thanks so much for being here, Claire. My pleasure. And obligation. No, I'm kidding. It's fine. I'm glad to be here. I don't well, oversell I how much I'm be here, but I'm glad to be here. Our obligation to honor. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad we're all honoring our yeah. obligation. <laughs> this is a very responsible day for all of us. Um, Good job, everyone. Speaking of some form of obligation that we have to the to the world mm-hmm. and the earth. So your last novel takes place in a near future dystopian society full of drought and and work camps and 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 then some some aspects of it are obviously fictional and fantastic. You know the the role of water, the crucial role of water mm-hmm. in the West is yeah. is real. Mm-hmm. And you're you grew up in the West. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering from what age or when you became aware of the kind of the precarity of the region. Yeah, I don't think it was something that I was ever like made aware of. It's just like part of the air. Like where I grew up, um, I was born in Bishop, which is in the Owens Valley. And Owens Lake is the lake that was drained when the Los Angeles aqueduct was made. It's nice to be back in a region where people like nod during that (laughs) story instead of just look at you like an alien. But yeah, so Los Angeles, you know, the short version that they tell in those parts is stole that lake, stole that water. And that's like a surrealist image that was just kind of a part of my creation myth. And my parents ran a, they weren't super educated people, but they were very intelligent and attentive and very sophisticated regarding the natural world. And they ran a little natural history museum on the edge of Death Valley. So, I mean, we've been looking back, looking back at how things came to be so precarious and so vulnerable for a long time. And I guess I always, it always seemed kind of inevitable to me that that, that like process of the, the aqueducts and Owens Lake disappearing wasn't an isolated incident, that there's only more people now and only more development and only more money to be made by, you know, raping, pillaging and plundering the natural resources. So... I'm, it's not something that I kind of like came into consciousness. It was just sort of baked into my worldview. Were your parents, did they talk about that or did they feel, yeah. you know, maybe angry about people who came to the desert? And They were both newcomers to the desert. You know, my mom grew up in Las Vegas and my dad mostly grew up here in L.A. And they met there. So they're converts. And so they have like a zealous kind of convert thing. Mm. And they were very protective of, my dad was a minor and in a way that like is he had like his own mind and worked by himself and that was like the most the, the the pinnacle of like romance like a way to be in the world just to be outside and by yourself and pay so much attention to the natural world that you could see w- how these rocks were made and what stories are there and what you could find there um and so yeah they definitely i mean they they were not quite like separatists but as you know i was born in 1984 so like as the culture wars really got going especially when i was in high school like my mom got really into like conspiracy theories and um became pretty 
like it, it started to become like a more of an aggression a philosophy you know and a feel like a really like your way of life is endangered is that a phenomenon that you think is impacted or amplified by desert life yeah, like I think so. Like the kind so. of the survival that yes. one actually, even yeah. when you're in kind of even Palm Springs, right? Yeah, it's like there's absolutely. still a survival that you have yeah. to enact. Yeah, you'd have to be pretty inattentive to be in the desert and not think about death and your own, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, mortality and how sure. vulnerable you are. And people, I've watched, I've taken enough people out to the desert now to notice this, like these steps of like epiphany that they have about their own mortality and how vulnerable they are and it's usually fear is like the first thing is like oh I'm really afraid for some reason you know and I'm like yes that's how you know it's working you know <laughs> like you're afraid because you're just a bag of water walking around and it's absurd that we have these stories in our culture that make us think that rain follows the plow or that could transform this great American desert into a, a hospitable profitable place but you know, that has been the story of the last century. So you can certainly see why people believe it. But now it's like, sometimes it feels like we're all sort of searching for new stories that are, help us cope with that tremendous vulnerability and that on the precipice feeling that, that we all know now. Yeah. It's interesting because there's so many stories about climate change that involve like places that are by water that will be soon uninhabitable. But I don't hear quite as many as like, the desert, Vegas, you know, communities in Southern California that don't have yeah. water. Yeah. It's not, I mean, I'm not sure why that is. I mean, it is obviously really important to pay attention to, like, coastal places and the actual, like, climate refugees that exist today in not a futuristic sense. But that's also kind of a comforting idea that this, like, environmental phenomenon would be isolated to any region or any place. Like, the, the idea of, like... I mean, even just, like, birds, the way that birds move, you know? Like, climate change has sort of warped the seasons so that the things that they used to eat aren't there anymore. And then, lo and behold, there's half as many birds in the Mojave Desert as there were when I was growing up. So it it is pretty, like, I don't know. I think America can't really get over the map, like our own map with the states. We have all these lines, like the pupfish cares about the line between Nevada and California, yeah. like the aquifers care about Texas policy versus Oklahoma policy, right. you know, like the air is going to, oh, well, this is just a problem here and, you know, whatever. There's a lot of, like, magical thinking about, like, that over there sure is a problem. But meanwhile, here, you know, like I was in Sun Valley, Idaho, maybe last summer, I think, and talking about the drought book and they were like that's really gnarly but um here in sun valley you know we've got great snowpack and it's like well that's not really how that works like these are just like vastly delicate interconnected systems and we don't really have a worldview that can reckon with that and we need one pretty badly yeah how do you think we i mean this is maybe a big question but (laughs) because it is so difficult to reckon with with thinking that way, I mean, I yeah. think actually thinking of interconnected ecosystems helps because then you can think of them as a yeah. as a particular mm-hmm. thing that must function as a whole. Mm-hmm. But what do you think are the ways in which we can get ourselves to reckon with things like that? I mean, I've noticed a few pretty useful concepts coming up. One of them about like a, a public commons, like mm. treating the environment as this thing that, be- like, you everyone has a right to 
clean air and clean water. And, the, and that there's actually like interesting legal cases being built on suing on behalf of future generations. And young climate change activists have a totally different moral charge to the way they talk about it because they can actually, they, they see, you know, climate reports that say 2040, 2030. And they can, in their brain, that isn't an abstract thing the way it maybe is for even us, you know, but like this, like this idea that they're, that we're har actively harming their future selves is, is a very powerful, persuasive idea. And I've also been increasingly drawn to ideas about like climate dread and climate grief, particularly grief, because there's, you know, we're so familiar with this stages of grieving, the Kubler-Ross thing and that you would get to some sort of a closure. And I feel like a lot of times when I'm being asked is like, how could I get to that closure? And I try to remind people that, that those steps are for the dying. You know, they're not actually for the people who are adjacent, the loved ones of the, mm. the terminally ill. Uh -huh. There's no closure. There's not, there's, there's not any closure for grief, you know? And um, one of the things I think we're grieving for is like the things that bring us pleasure every day, you know, like your air conditioning or your avocados or your IPAs or whatever you love. Just think about whatever you love and read two things of articles about it and you'll probably find that it's in grave danger. And if we don't acknowledge this like deep pain and like on a, almost like a spiritual level, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, a, I don't feel especially fluent talking about spirituality, but I think it's, it's a real like deep crippling kind of complicity that's like where everything that makes us feel good pleasure in our body like a nice warm day in February right mm -hmm. but we know cognitively that this is actually a very very bad thing or just flipping on the lights or whatever it, it, I don't know I just feel like the pl pleasure and the pain are more simultaneous now for me than they ever have been and if I've gotten any release at all it would be just giving up on that that's going to go away. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> is, is that, do you think, um, maybe this sounds perverse, but is, is that because you've allowed the desert inside of yourself? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that as I'm hearing you talk, it, it occurs to me that it's like one of the reasons we don't want to give up those things is not just because they're loved objects, but because they are loved objects, their loss is unimaginable. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a way in which like we we talk about climate change. We see documentaries about it. And, you know, like the polar bear that can't crawl on the ice flow, like those mm -hmm. kind of, you know, mm -hmm. we weep about them. But it is still unimaginable that the there could be here. Mm -hmm. And there's something about what you're saying with the desert is that like you're experiencing the there in the here. Yeah. And like so mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you mm -hmm. could talk a little bit about that, about like yeah. maybe the desert as future mm -hmm. and as a way to reinvent a kind of optimistic life, yeah. Yeah. you know, just yeah. alternate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think, and I was saying this on the panel a bit ago, that I think that part of these stories that my parents were telling, or like even a book like Cadillac Desert, I don't know if you guys have ever read that, the Mark Reisner book, which is all about the Los Angeles Aqueduct Project, and they, my parents would like read that to me as like a bedtime story, you know, <laughs> like, um, that helped me, or it encouraged me to think of us in a way as like a post-apocalyptic people. Like the lake is already gone way before I got there, you know, and we're living on the edge of Death Valley and it's not a subtle landscape. I mean, you can see that in my book. Like that's why the language is always kind of turned up to 11 as much as I try to turn it down. Sometimes it seems I can't, but that's how I learned that was like an intuition that lived in my body that life is really precarious. And this way of living 
as in like I grew up in like a trailer, you know, in in Pahrump with air conditioning and electricity. That's actually brand new like that way of living and it's not informed by an intuition like a deep wisdom so when I say oh yeah I think we thought of ourselves as a post-apocalyptic people obviously a lot of my native friends are sort of rolling their eyes and they're like yeah welcome you know welcome but that kind of like deep knowing like I lived in a place where human beings had a rhythm where they would move around and they were nomadic to adjust to extreme heats right and you go north for the pine nuts and then you come down for game or whatever it was we had this american amnesia right like colonialism like severed the ties of that wisdom so we don't it 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 seems obvious that this way in the trailer with the ac chugging and chugging is like this it can't go on and Mm. i guess it's just it's just a if you're sensitive and attentive that lesson is in your body when you're in the desert yeah where do you live now can i ask austin austin texas austin texas yeah i'm living there for a semester to teach I mean, it sounds like you take some pleasure in initiating people into the, the desert, yeah. right? And being like, here, this is yes, what it's, it's like. perverse pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I like to see people, rec- like, actually look at their, like, mortality and their fragility and then come through and surrender to, like, a, oh, yeah, you know, we're all dust. And how are you, what are you going to do about that? Like, that is going to change how you act, you know? So, like, I can't really understand a phenomenon like Trump putting your name on a bunch of fucking buildings I don't understand it at all except for that oh you want to be deathless like you and so many of us like don't it has so much to do with death and as I said it's not a subtle thing you know that um, so yeah I like to I like to see that happen and Uh it feels good to me and I think people there's a purifying fire to it maybe (laughs) yeah and you also run a school I don't know if you still do this but you run a school for young yeah. people to mm-hmm. write out in Nevada yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the last five years, I've been doing just like a free creative writing workshop for in my hometown for high schoolers, you know, just in my sister's old high school, which is also a trailer. Um, yeah, partly be- because just to sort of like emphasize that their stories matter and that this place matters and that there's such a like deep internalized sense of nothingness. I mean, the way we talk about the desert is like this wasteland or this emptiness. And it's like, it's just empty of built human things, you know? (laughs) And not that there can't be a certain beauty to that. Thinking of like the spectacle of Las Vegas, you know, but if you just reorient and to be able to see like, oh, this is actually quite alive and important and not maybe for me. Like maybe I'm not supposed to be here and I'm not supposed mm-hmm. to be here in the scale of like Las Vegas or Phoenix or Los Angeles. I don't know how, what to do with that though. Yeah. Someone on my panel re- just now was like, how about, uh, you know, population control? And I was like, yeah, of course, that'd be great. But like the loins are very persuasive, yes. <laughs> you know? So <laughs> it, I mean, it, it is gonna take some r- radical reimagining of what the, the human beings are supposed to be doing with our time on this rock, you know? So, Claire, what are you writing about at the moment? What are you working on? I'm writing about death, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is a surprise. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> a big departure for me. Um, I'm writing um, a book that's, like, set in Death Valley, basically. It's called Tacopa. It's the name of the, the little town where I was growing up. And is about my parents' death and about death of a marriage and just kind of like walking around with a lost person while they grieve and behave badly. Mm. And I'm hoping it's interesting to watch. Wow, that sounds good. I actually, you know, now that I think about it, the essay that you wrote a few years ago that was published Mm -hmm. in Tin House, Mm -hmm. 
the um, I forget the t- the name of it. Yeah, uh, on pandering. It? On pandering. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And it was partly about you're meeting Stephen Elliott, mm-hmm. but something that was really interesting to me about it, and I I actually taught it to students at UCLA because I think something that you do in it is close read and interaction and sort of expose the many ways in which little things or little ways in which somebody might talk to you or might act with you reveal something bigger. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about, I mean, you know, since then we've had Me Too. That was sort of Me Too, which has been after that. that. Yeah. (laughs) So something you might know about. Uh Um, (laughs) Me what now? (laughs) Okay. I'll look it up. Um, Have you thought more about that, like that essay, that subject, Mm -hmm. um, and your relationship to, to that subject at all? Hmm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I learned a lot from the response to it. I mean, there were like really useful critiques about it being in- insufficiently intersectional in some ways that I, I learned a lot about and did some reading and lo and behold, yeah, it has, it could, but it, I think the process of, of not only close reading like a social inter- encounter, but like close reading your reading history and the way that you have created this idea of what is good or what is excellent or who is that oriented towards is still still really useful to me mm-hmm. and has been... I've had to kind of sit in the vacuum of that. Like, all right, if you weren't, if you're not going to create excellence that old way that you used to do it by like watching boys do stuff, what now? And it's like, I guess just, I guess me. I mean, I'm reading it much, much differently than I, than I read back when I was writing that essay. But I'm also just thinking a little bit about like writing as a pleasure experience. Mm -hmm. I just wrote this essay about The Awakening by Kate Chopin. And it's, of course, all about like sensuality. And that's the way that she wakes up is is by um, being in her body and trusting its intuition and insisting on its integrity and especially when your thoughts are dissonant with whatever you know dominant narrative is is Mm -hmm. out there and yeah it's been useful for me to just be a little bit more conscientious about the stories I tell myself as I make stories that's a beautiful place to end. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> Once again. Um, yeah. We've been speaking with Clara V. Watkins, author most recently of Gold Fame Citrus. Thanks for being here, Clara. My pleasure. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 